Alrighty everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, bringing you another fresh episode of Monday Madness on May 30th, 2023. Yes, technically this episode is coming out on Tuesday, but that is only because Memorial Day was yesterday, and I was lucky enough to have the day off to grill and spend good time with people that I love. It was a nice relaxing weekend. Between getting a new cat with my girlfriend and the beautiful blooming flowers, my nose is as stuffed as a Thanksgiving turkey. I love those little animals, but the sinuses sure don't, so please excuse my nasally voice this episode. I hope you all got some nice time off as well and are well rested as we enter this shorter week. If you are new to this segment, this is a space for a quick visit to some insightful statistics and a little bit of news that is making waves in the energy space. Let's get down to brass tacks, starting with WTI. Last week, it seemed like the price was starting to recover as it climbed from that $70 floor that was established. We saw a high on the better side of $74, but it didn't last too long as it fell back to $72. But hey, that's not so bad. I can deal with $72. Unfortunately, markets this Tuesday, this very day this episode was written and released, they did not fare as well and the prices plummeted down to a low $69. Only now has it recovered, if I can even call it recovery, to $69.78. I hope to get back to $70 before the end of the day, but it is better to keep emotions aside and let it ride. As you might expect, Brent has performed similarly with the same movement and volatility. The current spread is a little bit less than $4, but don't go celebrating anything yet. The volatility aspect is one thing that often causes these spreads to oscillate wildly, so wait until it settles out for a proper read. That being said, volatility is only becoming increasingly more common in commodity pricing. The swings are frequent, but the spacing is tight. We haven't really swung much higher than 76-ish dollars for a few months now, and it never falls much lower than 70 dollars. If you check historical movement, we don't really see anything like this since about late 2006 before it blew up in price following that 2008 financial crisis. Could be an absolute coincidence with zero correlation, but it does make the suppression of price look fishy, and yes, I will call it suppression. It's not normal for something to live in this region for so long. Next up is the rig count, which has been, shall we say, less than ideal in recent weeks. After months of stable rig count, we have fallen quite far from any signs of growth. So, how did it fare this past week? Much more of the same. Nine fewer rigs for the week, lowering the total to 711, or 16 fewer rigs than we had this time last year. It was actually the Haynesville that was the worst performing basin, with three dropped rigs. The Can of Woodford dropped two, and the Barmint and DJ dropped one each. Otherwise, the Granite Wash, Eagleford, and Permian each added one, so we're seeing a little strength on that Texas side between the Eagleford and Permian. From a state level, Oklahoma is now down five rigs. Utah and Louisiana lost two, with Alaska and Colorado losing one each. The only states to improve their rig count were Wyoming, who is up one, and Texas, who found a way to come up two. Though that does surprise nobody. The Gulf of Mexico did not escape the slaughter, and even fell one. We lost a bunch of horizontal rigs that were targeting a pretty equal split of oil and gas. I don't have much to say here. Just goes to show that lots of companies are done spending on exploration as the price just didn't pop when they expected. The last statistic to cover, of course, is Thirsty Thursday, written by Nick Fernhout. Thank you, Nick. You can always find it yourself on www.rarepetro.com, which I will always advocate for as it has many more figures to truly enhance your understanding. 
There's nothing like a little graph to get you a whole long way. Here's the bare bones for those of you who will only listen. Wow. And what more is there to say? A 12.5 million barrel draw is huge. The EIA sure didn't expect it considering they had forecasted a 1 million barrel draw. Almost equally as odd, the API reported a draw of only 6.8 million barrels, about half of what the EIA reported. They also forecasted a build. Something seems to be going on over at the API. The last time we saw a draw this large was not too long ago, just back at the end of November. However, prior to that, there hasn't been such a large draw since June of 2019. The draw in oil stocks was likely the result of much of the oil needing to be refined into products such as gasoline for the summer. As people drive, fly, and use other means of transportation, the oil stocks across the country drop. Gasoline stocks tend to follow suit, and gas prices have an inverse relationship, however, lag behind a few weeks. Gasoline cheapened nationwide this week by a whole two-tenths of a cent. Mississippi is being charged on average $3 flat for a gallon, while California is charging $4,826. Diesel cheapens, too, this week by two cents on average nationwide. Diesel stocks, or more accurately, distillate stocks, continue dropping to very low lows. At this point, it's getting worrisome. Propane and propylene, on the other hand, are sitting pretty above their five-year range. Folks, that concludes Nick's inventory report and brings us to the news. Our first story is big news in the regulatory space and even moves a little bit past energy. The SEC proposed rules to, quote, enhance and standardize climate-related disclosures for investors, end quote, because that is something that apparently is important to investors. They will do so by requiring companies to report Scope 3 emissions, among many other things. Some of you may have forgotten how the scopes are defined, so here's a quick rundown. Pretend you own a pizza shop. Scope 1 emissions are those things that are directly associated with the business and the assets that you own, so this would apply to your small fleet of delivery cars. The gasoline burned by the delivery cars that are owned by the pizza shop would qualify as Scope 1, but say if you hired someone who volunteered to use their own car, that would not qualify. That car is not owned by the pizzeria. Scope 2 emissions come from what the company indirectly consumes as it produces a good. This would include the electricity that the pizzeria uses to run the AC and lights. So far, these are reasonable things to calculate, as we do have data that can keep track of these. I mean, keeping track of your mileage, checking the electric meter, it is doable. The last one is where it gets confusing, Scope 3. Scope 3 is every indirect carbon emission associated with upstream and downstream activities. For your pizza shop, this would include the carbon cost of manufacturing t-shirts that will be used as uniforms, the carbon associated with employees driving to your pizza shop to get into the company-owned pizza car, and many things that happen before dough is even delivered to the shop. Frustrated yet? Well, let's consider the downstream. What is the carbon cost of franchising your pizza chain to someone else? What is the carbon cost of someone throwing away a pizza box? What is the cost of consuming the pizza? Now, this example is incredibly convoluted, yes, but your mom and pop pizza shops are going to have to worry. These rules are definitely going to be applied to massive corporations, but it looks like it's coming down the line as well. But how? Even if we scale it to DiGiorno's, how does the carbon cost vary if someone throws away the box versus washing out the grease and cheese to recycle it? Surely that varies. This is what companies are mostly upset about. 
there isn't currently a universal methodology for supply chain reporting, because that would have to be international, and disclosures like this couldn't possibly be accurate. This would only serve to confuse and mislead investors with guesstimates that are too far from the truth. Besides, a large corporation like DiGiorno's could probably stomach the cost of a carbon department to calculate such things. How is your local joint supposed to compete if held to the same standards? How could a farmer accurately calculate and associate the carbon cost of his potatoes, and would it be lower than an industrial farm? Carbon cost is only one metric to judge things off of, and it's incredibly arbitrary and far from accurate. As you can imagine, many people are angry, and I do worry a lot for those of us in our industry. Since you and I likely work in an industry dealing with raw energy commodities, the very thing that we produce by flawed definition, is the antithesis of green. I'm not saying that I don't believe in the power of oil and gas. I'm saying that analyzing our industry through the lens of emissions, especially Scope 3, would scare away any investor that was a climate alarmist. Don't even get me started on the pizza shop example. The pizza shop owner is probably upset that the carbon cost of everything they do in some way ties back to oil and gas, and that's only one small business. I suppose that... This is how we let it divide people, but I'm incredibly worried about the SEC as they consider the finalization of this rule as people like Elizabeth Warren really push it. Now, this would be an easy tangent to get lost on, so keep that one locked in your mind and chew on it this week. Next, we will target a more oil-centric story. OPEC believes Iran would be a healthy contributor to the world's oil market and welcome them back with open arms, according to a recent statement made by OPEC Secretary General Haitham Al-Gais. What it means by that is the fact that Iran, one of OPEC's founding members, is going to be a key player in trading and exports from the Middle East once sanctions are removed. Back in 2016, the Trump administration reimposed sanctions on Iran's oil industry that aimed to cut the head off of their economy, that being oil and gas exports. The overall goal was to prevent Iran from continuing to funnel that money into their nuclear programs, and it kind of worked, but oil trade has really done nothing but stop. China became Iran's biggest purchaser, and even countries like Venezuela were receiving oil in exchange for planes full of gold. That's only the stuff that is heard of. Iran definitely offloaded its oil between tankers, muddled some papers claiming its origin, and continued to push their product. I mean, although the U.S. will likely not stop Iran from developing nuclear technologies, whether that be for war or energy, Iran will be repairing its relationship with Saudi Arabia, thanks to China and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and step up to the plate when they return to legal global oil trade with or without the permission of the United States. And uh, as a fun little aside, if you even go to OPEC's website, you can see how much uh, oil Iran has reported selling even through the year of 2021, which apparently they're, of course, supposed to be sanctioned by then, but hey, loud and proud, they're still selling the stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, that is all I've got. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. We've got plenty of great content we are working on in many different forms of media, so you'll want to take a peek at www.rarepetro.com to see what else we have in the works. This has been Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 